bendecirlo. Welcome to the very first episode of The Compliance Guy Live. I am Sean Weiss, and it is an absolute pleasure to be sitting here with all of you who chose to join me on this Friday, April 16, 2021, when you could be doing so many other things. Checking the numbers prior to the start of the show, we were closing in on the 500 live viewers and listeners, so I am... Uh, so excited and so grateful to all of you who have joined today. Uh, the majority of states, believe it or not, are actually represented, and we have folks from as far off as Hawaii on the line. Aloha to all of you out there today. Again, I cannot tell you how much this means to me. <clears throat> I'd also like to take a moment to recognize the work of this production crew, because without them, I would not be sitting here. And finally, a special shout out to Martin and Paul for creating the show's music. Uh, guys, we could not have had a better fit for the show. So now let me introduce my co-host, Mr. Scott Kraft. Welcome, my friend, and thank you for being part of the show. And thank you, Sean. I appreciate the chance to be a part of it. And I, I certainly would echo uh, your sentiments about thanks to everybody who has uh, helped us get to our our day today so quickly. Uh, and I would echo uh, that it's so nice to see people here uh, from all 50 states. I'm a little bit envious uh, coming to you from Northern Virginia today uh, that I sort of wish I was in Hawaii saying aloha with some of those folks, but it's nice to be here. Absolutely. And, you know, as this whole uh, pandemic starts to wind down and we all started uh, start to get our opportunity to travel and get back to uh, some sense of normalcy, whatever that may be for you, uh, hopefully we'll be getting a chance to climb on board some of these airplanes and heading off to these uh, different destinations uh, to just kind of put our toes in the sand and uh, put a cold drink in the hand and relax and then get back to living. So uh, look, this show is uh, set for 60 minutes and part of the uh, show, I wanted to make sure that you and I have an opportunity to spend time talking about what seems to be the AMA's multiple missteps with their issued guidance regarding the 2021 Evaluation and Management Service Guidelines, and more specifically, the medical decision-making aspect with respect to the data piece. I think it's fair to say, and, and uh, you know, maybe I'm being kind today, but I think it's fair to say the rollout thus far has been uh, choppy for sure. I think when we're two plus months into a new documentation system uh, and practices large and small uh, are not just asking us questions about how to interpret it, but they're telling us their own interpretations that they've heard in other places, 
that we know are incorrect, uh, as well as getting uh, this set of updates in March from the AMA that I think all of us needed. Uh, I think it's definitely been a choppy rollout of a system that is is obviously critical to every uh, every practice's ability to properly code E&M services. Uh, you know, I have a feeling when we look back on January and February services, uh, we'll see a lot of misinterpretation of these guidelines. And, and given the fact that we've had since 2018, really, to figure this out, I think that's pretty unfortunate. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, when we talk about the multiple missteps, let's let's clarify this, right? Because the, the first misstep for me was the initial publication of the CPT manual that came out. And it provided us with their overview of the guidelines. And then during the symposium, there were a lot of clarifications that were discussed at the symposium, which not everybody participates in. So really what wound up happening was folks were hearing about what was said at the symposium or they were hearing these different interpretations and they were scrolling and, and you know moving as quick as they could through their CPT manuals to try to find what others were actually talking about, not realizing that this was other guidance actually provided during the symposium. And then I think the third is what you just alluded to, right, Scott, which was you know, the, the most recent issued clarifications that came out uh, in March of this year. Something as important as these guidelines, taking your point about the symposium, I mean, this isn't, you know, something that should be two-tiered information, right? And so part of what got us in trouble were there, there were some things that were said at the symposium. I mean, we didn't get in trouble, but uh, part of the trouble that started from this were there were things that were said at the symposium uh, that were then spread through the industry that weren't published guidance and led to a lot of uh, confusion about what actually providers were able to take credit for as part of their work of an E&M service. When we think about the, the, the list of other activities that are taking place as part of those services and, uh, you know, people reaching out to us with questions and just that lack of clarity, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate the, the role of the code structure and those types of things, but something as critical as this uh, that affects everybody in our industry in such a dramatic way, I think the, the flow of information really has to be uh, much more clear and concise and, and frankly open to everybody. I mean, I think that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, and I think the thing to, you know, keep in mind is that there's no doubt we're already hearing from the payers, including the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, that we should expect additional clarifications or some modifications to how things actually stand right now. Uh, I, I think, you know, I go back to one of the things that, you know, I initially talked about, and then I, you know, I want you, you know, in the next, you know, several minutes, if you could, to kind of walk us through the data element piece uh, that I think has created so much confusion, not only with physicians, but even with expert coders and auditors who have been at this game for as long as I have. And I mean, I've been doing this for 26 years, and I still found myself scratching my head saying, hey, wait a minute, what's what's going on here? But <clears throat> I think these initial, you know, clarifications, and you know, when we did our interview, Scott, if you think back to Seema Verma back in um, December, right, we had a great interview with Seema Verma, and we actually talked about the clarifications and the expectation of clarifications to the evaluation and management services guidelines, and she said, we absolutely expect that there are going to be guidelines, and I think the biggest problem is payers 
weren't prepared for the influx in the increase of level three to level four evaluation and management services and then from fours to fives, right? Because providers were told that this is really an administrative simplification whereby now they're only having to rely on medical decision-making and or time. But what they failed to bring forward in these guidelines is that medical necessity is still the overarching criterion in addition to the individual elements. Remember, Section 30.6 of the Program Integrity Manual in Chapter 3 has not changed for evaluation and management services. Right. And, I, I, you know, the first thing I would say is I, I would love somebody to, to do an analysis of the number of times that something that was presented to us as a simplification uh, actually simplified uh, anything. Right. And so it, it, it my hope is that eventually we'll get there. So. I think there's certainly a few points there, and I'll talk a little bit about the data because there certainly have been a lot of level three to level four surges. There's been a lot of level four to level five surges. And we can't, uh, in our role uh, as auditors, we can talk about medical necessity as you did. But if I take a strict run through the medical decision making under these guidelines, I can't uh, dispute the the practices making these decisions to charge more level fours and level fives. And as you and I know, uh, and as we've talked about, one thing that under the 1995 and 97 guidelines, plenty of Medicare payers, plenty of other payers looked at those guidelines and said, well, hey, that's a good start. But for us, we want another layer of documentation in your exam. We want another uh, uh, layer of your medical decision making to, to evaluate medical necessity. So we think that's going to happen uh, again for sure. And, I, and to me, you know, the biggest issue with data, obviously you get every test, uh, every individual lab is counted as part of data at the order level now, but a lot of this confusion started, and again, you know, talk about a choppy rollout, because I would get calls from people who had spoken to experts, and, and I'm not here to call anybody out, but these are reputable experts who I, I believe were acting in good faith that were presenting interpretations of the guidelines that that we didn't agree with, and to me, that suggests confusion at the AMA level. So, when this March uh, revision rolled out, where we where, where we were standing with that uh, is is this understanding, right? And so, when a provider orders a test that has an interpretive component to it, that that provider is getting paid for as part of the the visit. So we're talking about things like EKGs and MRIs, where the provider's interpretation is part of the service. Then that could not be counted as an order uh, or as a review at any point in the data process. Now. To me, that runs a little bit contrary to the physician work concept, but I won't get hung up on that or we'll be here for an hour. But uh, they also said that lab services that did not have an interpretive component uh, that were done at the point of care, your rapid strep tests, those could be counted as an order. But like any other lab test, you would not get credit for the result as well. So now when you make an order that counts as an order, it's implied that the result that's delivered to the patient is not separately counted as a result at a separate encounter. So I think that's an important distinction, but given our historical reliance on review and or order, it does become confusing, particularly when you look at the guidelines under data and it says review of each individual order. And then right. we understand that review of each individual order, excuse me, means orders that were brought in from another place. So now if I've gone to urgent care and I've brought that MRI result uh, to my orthopedist, that orthopedist will get credit uh, for reviewing the report. But if that orthopedist reviews the indiv individual image, 
that's a separate tier of credit under these guidelines, right? So the, the, we've talked a lot about the first category with review of external orders, review of notes, uh, ordering of individual tests. The second and third components of this, which are also important, uh, are the review or the review of independent interpretation uh, of an imaging test. So what we think of in the industry as an overread is an entire separate category. Uh, and then the discussion of the patient's case with another provider. Things like the decision to obtain old records are not part of this data, but the actual review of old records when described individually certainly are. And so it places a lot of emphasis uh, to our providers on the need, you know, things that I've discussed already, right? The need to make sure that each of your individual orders is accounted for in your record, that you're not saying things like order labs, that you understand how to count each individual lab at the order and review basis, that you discuss each external source individually within a note to ensure that you're given the proper credit. And, and the last thing I'll say about this is I, I already see a lot of lack of clarity around orders. And what I mean by that is uh, the provider will explain the new diagnosis. So the patient will have, say, diabetes as a new diagnosis. The provider comes in and says, well, that's, we're going to need to order A1C, but I don't see an order for it, right? And so, so uh, you know, my encouragement to the, to the providers in this is to be very active in your word choice, right? We talk about active verbs. So you're not intending to order things, you're actually ordering things. Uh, and I think, you know, we've, we've always thought of data as the forgotten stepchild of medical decision-making, but uh, it will certainly be a much more critical piece uh, under these rules, I think, particularly in view of the, the role of risk. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get back to that later, I think, but I definitely wanted to frame that up. Yeah, no, and I think you did an outstanding job of talking about that. And I think, you know, it goes back to a point that I want to harp on for just a moment, which you just brought up, which is so key to this discussion, and that's the importance of the order, right? I mean, you know, think about the number of audits that we are engaged in on behalf of clients around the country. Uh, shortly, we're going to be introducing you to our special guest, um, Robert Lyles, in just a few minutes. And, you know, Robert can also speak to, uh, I know we're going to be really spending a lot of time talking about the anti-kickback statutes. But, you know, going through these medical records and, and realizing that key aspects of the medical records just aren't visible. They're not there. There's no way for us to be able to substantiate when an order, right? Because we can't just, you know, uh, imply that something's there, right? And, and, and the carrier manuals are specific with that. And, and now you think about the external orders, right? So how do I know it's an external order? I only really know because the provider either tells me or I go on quite a bit of investigative work. And it flies in the face of uh, one of the first concepts of external audit, right? Send no more documentation than is necessary. And with some of these orders, that's going to result in the need, if they're not memorialized within the record, for a lot of additional potential documentation to have to be supplied. Right. So, you know, listen, with all things that we talk about when it comes to documentation, documentation is king. Documentation is so important. And, you know, trying to take into you know, that mindset that, well, this is really an administrative simplification, so I don't have to really document the history or the physical exam anymore, and I can just kind of rely on my clinical judgment or the medical decision-making aspect. That's just, the, the, the standards haven't changed, right? I mean, right. I'm, I'm, I, I know I'm a little off my rocker at times, but I mean, I, you know, the standards haven't changed, right? I mean, what has changed is there is no longer a need to <laughs> 
uh, put in copious amounts of extemporaneous history and exam detail just to ensure that that does not become an audit risk, right? And so the need to establish medical necessity in the note has not changed. Absolutely. All right. Well, as we get ready to bring on our next guest, let me go ahead and take this moment to thank all of our sponsors. This segment is brought to you by the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists. NamUs was doing virtual before virtual was cool. Join NamUs for the third annual virtual conference on May 12th and 13th. Registration is now open for individual or corporate signups. Visit them at www.namus.co. Again, that is www.namus.co for more information. All right. Well, now it is my pleasure to introduce our special guest to the show today, Mr. Robert Lyles of Lyles Parker. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. Great to be here. Robert, today we're going to be talking about the anti-kickback statute. Uh, we're going to be talking about the statutory exceptions, and we're going to be talking about the safe harbors themselves. But I think it's it's really important to talk for just a moment about your background, um, since you know we we really are getting into the law. And you're a former prosecutor with the U.S. Attorney's Office, and you were also the first national healthcare fraud coordinator for the U.S. Attorney's Office, correct? That's correct, Sean. I've been in, uh, I've been in, in healthcare for a long time. As, as I kind of joke with you, I'm a recovering hospital administrator, have a master's in hospital administration, and then um, worked as a federal prosecutor for many years before I went into private practice. Right. And I'm guessing in your role as a prosecutor and with the Department of Justice, you know, anti-kickbacks uh, were often a topic of discussion. They were, although at that time, I will tell you, the statute was very different then than it is now. And we'll be talking about some of those differences, but there are some very fundamental changes that have occurred since uh, since the 90s. Uh, well, really going back since it was first passed in 72, you know, the way that they looked at, at knowledge and intent and the rest of it. But uh, it's a very different statute today. Yeah. And, you know, Robert, just for those who don't know our, our history together, uh, you and I have been uh, kicking the tires together for more than 20 years. Um, you've, you've aged like a fine wine and I've aged like uh, a, a bad wheel of cheese. Um, but I got to tell you, my friend, uh, there's nobody who I would have uh, rather done this inaugural show with than you. Um, you know, your professionalism your knowledge of the law and just your overall great nature and, and being one of my, you know, truly closest and, and, and best friends. Uh, I can't tell you how much it means uh, to be able to share you with all of those who may not know who you are. So again, thank you and welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. I also was excited to learn because I'm sure some of uh, our, our viewers are looking and going, well, wait a minute, why is there this other guy sitting there? Um, I was actually very excited to learn late yesterday that we have a second special guest uh, joining our discussion today, and that's Mr. Michael Cook, who's also an attorney with Lyles Parker. Uh, Michael was an attorney with the GCO at HHS, um, 
and serves as the chair of the state board that oversees Medicaid's program in Virginia. Michael, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here today. I know you're going to bring a tremendous amount to the show with your expertise in value-based care, and, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. But uh, if you would, go ahead and introduce yourself to our viewership, please. Sean, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here to have the opportunity to speak with you. And as Sean said, I started out many, many years ago in the general counsel's office at uh, HHS, uh, representing the federal regulators of the Medicare and Medicaid programs, uh, probably before many of you were born. Uh, since then, I've been practicing uh, healthcare law full time for, God, about 40 years or so. And uh, uh, Chair, as you mentioned, um, among other things, I've been privileged to chair the uh, the board that oversees Virginia's Medicaid program and been doing a lot of regulatory law. And I'm just delighted to have the opportunity to be here and to share the, the podium with my friend Robert Lyles, a partner. All right. Well, gentlemen, again, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. So let's jump right in and let's talk about the fact that new exceptions and safe harbors were actually released in November 2020. Now, I know there's been some confusion because we've heard some folks, and I've read in, in some places, Robert, where folks actually talked about, I think it was a December 2nd release of the Federal Register, but really the, the Federal Register was released in November of 2020. And, and I want to talk really about what these exceptions and safe harbors mean for the industry as a whole. Sure. Well, I have to tell you, it, it, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I know before we, we had this uh, presentation today, you and I actually sat down and went over all the various statutory exceptions and all of the regulatory safe harbors. And, and there's a lot of them out there these days. And uh, the interplay between them is, is, is really quite complicated. Um, this is something that... Um, uh, we're going to have to see how they play out. I'm glad that Mike's here because the value-based safe harbors alone are, they are a really, I think, an evolutionary step uh, uh, from where CMS has, has been going since 2008 or so, but, but uh, there's still a lot of unknowns out there. Yeah, and you know, I think before we start really dissecting all of this madness, you know, it's important to identify the fact that the statute impacts the industry as a whole, right? And that the complexities of the statute impact the ACOs and hospitals differently than what maybe we would see in physician group practices. Is that a fair statement? Well, I mean, the statutes are what they are and, and they, they do impact the industry as a whole, but a lot of the statutes I do believe are really aimed at the, the uh, health centers and hospitals and, and, and larger healthcare institutions. Mike, would you agree with that? I would, but I'd also tell you that it, um, it also, especially with the, uh, with, the newer safe, with the newer safe harbors, recognize that you've got to look at the healthcare continuum as a whole. You can't look at it as various silos, and they try to address that and encourage coordination. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, a really key point has to be made here from the very beginning, because when folks hear us talk about exceptions, you know, a lot of folks are going to think we're talking about Stark, right? But we're not. We're talking about the exceptions, uh, what they call statutory exceptions to the anti-kickback statute. 
So we're talking about these exceptions within the statute. We're also going to be talking about the safe harbors and, you know, understanding that, you know, and really, Robert, you know, as and as a, an attorney and, and Michael, as an attorney, I'd like you all to really talk about the fact that even yeah. though you can be in compliance with Stark, right, you know, there's a, a distinct possibility that you could be out of compliance with the anti-kickback statute. So let me let me go ahead and, and have you guys talk a little bit about that, if you would. Well, yeah, let, let me just back up for one second. I mean, You've got Congress, and when Congress created these statutory exceptions, they, they really created these 60,000-foot basic rules that they said, we understand that the anti-kickback statute is extraordinarily broad, but we also recognize that there are certain business arrangements that might technically represent a violation of, the, of this criminal statute, but we think if certain safeguards are met, it shouldn't be against the law. So when they created the statutory exceptions, if you look at them, a lot of them, like the, the waiver of coinsurance and the uh, bona fide em employment relationships and the rest of it, those are very, very broadly written. And that's why uh, one of the things, of course, that Congress also did is Congress said, OIG, we give you the authority. We understand that a lot more guidance needs to be issued out there. And we give you the authority to issue issue um, uh, regulatory safe harbors that after your analysis you think would also be a good way to kind of, of, of allow the industry to move forward in a way that doesn't really pose a big risk to the sanctity, if you will, of, of the Medicare trust fund. So that's where OIG came in. And the, you know, the, uh, some of the confusion runs because a lot of the regulatory safe harbors have a corollary or, or they've got an overriding statutory exception that they also have to kind of fall under. And then confusing things even more, Michael, on the Stark side, and we're not going to talk about Stark today. Um, our, in fact, our partner, Jennifer Papapanagotu, I believe, is going to be scheduled to, to do a separate presentation on the new Stark exceptions. But, you know, Stark has very similar uh, exceptions as well that don't match up necessarily with their their uh, uh, similar uh, uh, anti-kickback safe harbor. And, and what's the problem with that, Mike? Well, I think it's both a problem and a recognition of a um, and a and a recognition. I think the reason OIG made the Stark exceptions narrow um, broader. Is because, as you mentioned, Robert, and as Jennifer, or, uh, CMS made the Stark. CMS, excuse yeah. me, made the uh, uh, made the Stark ex exceptions uh, broader. Um, uh, uh, is because it's a, it's a uh, strict liability statute, and because of that, doesn't matter what you thought, you violate it, and you've got a fine. So they had to be careful as to how they set this up. Whereas with the with the uh, anti kickback statute and the safe harbors. Um, they could they could be narrower because they don't want to necessarily give you a free pass um, uh, on what could be um, uh, conduct that they're the conduct that they don't consider appropriate. Right. It can it can both create confusion and it also but there and there's a reason for it. But Sean's point though is they're sitting down at the same table. And CMS is working on these new exceptions, and OIG is working on these new safe harbors. 
why couldn't they have made these mesh better? Because right now you can violate one and still not meet the other. Or, or, or I'm sorry, you can meet one and, and still not meet the other. Well, no, you know, guys, I, I, here, here's what I'll say to that, right? You know, and, and, you know, the truth of the matter is, you know, it's the government. And if you wait long enough, they'll find a way to screw this thing up. And, you know, I mean, there's a whole other set of, you know, uh, uh, you know, regs that are out there, right, with ECRA. And ECRA doesn't, you know, conform to either of these. But, you know, ECRA is a conversation for another day. But I want to I want to talk, if we can now, about some of these exceptions, because, Robert, you know, there are 11 exceptions to the anti-kickback statutes that, you know, we sort of had a conversation and, you know, there's a few of them. You actually mentioned one a moment ago. So for those of you that are, are, are uh, following along with us today and, and you're, you're wondering how these anti-kickback statutes impact your organizations, there's all these different sections within the statute. And one that we're talking about right now is 42 USC subsection 1320A7B3. And I wanted to talk about B first, right? Because you, you actually alluded to that just a moment ago, which was the bona fide employment relationships. So could you quickly give us some understanding of what they mean by a bona fide employment relationship? That's, that's a good one to start out with, because there is a statutory exception, which means that Congress said, we're passing this as a law. This is a statutory exception to the definition of remuneration under the anti-kickback statute. And if you actually look up what it says under the statute, it's very, very broad. It says, you know, remuneration shall not mean a bona fide employment relationship. Well, you know, as you would expect, what in the world is a bona fide employment relationship? I can tell you there is the IRS definition of what a bona fide employment relationship is. There have been multiple uh, conflicting case decisions as to what that is until finally there really was a Supreme Court case that came down and addressed that issue. And it's a, it's a, it's a tough one. And, and that's a perfect example also of how OIG then kind of entered the fray and, and, and tried to uh, uh, provide more clarity. They issued a separate regulatory safe harbor for employees. Okay. Right. So, it's the kind of thing that, that you really have to be careful because there have been a number of, remember guys, at, at its core, I know we're seeing a lot of False Claims Act cases being brought these days for, for anti-kickback violations, but at its core, we're talking about a criminal statute, okay? And there are a number of cases out there where the government has gone after um, our providers saying that these, these uh, relationships with their supposed bona fide employees we're, you know, don't meet the safe harbor because they don't qualify as bona fide employees. That's so, right. you know, it, it, it's, it's a good example of it's something that ought to be simple, but it's not. And I do recommend that if, in fact, especially, you know, uh, if, if you're employing marketing people, it comes into play a lot with the, with the employment of, of marketing personnel and customer and, and, um, um, uh, community relations people and the rest of it, the folks that are helping folks, you know, build up their, their, their referral base and, you know, how you pay those folks. If it's a bona fide employment relationship, it very well may be perfectly appropriate to pay them however you want to practically under 
um, uh, the uh, statutory exception and the regulatory safe harbor. But if they don't meet that requirement as a bona fide employee, then all of a sudden you got a real problem because that does, you know, that throws it to, well, do they qualify then under the personal services regulatory safe harbor? And if they don't, it's just a violation of the anti-kickback statute. So, right. And, and you're talking, and you're talking about those who don't fit the bona fide employment definition as potentially independent contractors, right? That's right. And then all of a sudden conduct that you thought was legal is not legal. That's right. Or business well, arrangements that you thought was legal is was is not legal. So you got to yeah, be very careful. Absolutely. And we're we're going to get to the personal services and management contracts in just a little while. But that leads me to and and for all of our viewers that are out there live today, you have an opportunity to post your questions and get your questions answered live throughout this uh, uh, presentation. Uh, well, throughout the show. Um, but I do want to talk about one that I think is going to raise a lot of questions, and that is paragraph D, which is the waiver of coinsurance. Now, even though this is not a new statutory exception, this is still something that, Robert, I get these questions all the time. You know, Sean, I have a doctor who's, you know, just wanting to, you know, take what the insurance pays and, you know, they're, they're not wanting to get into it because the patient has a high deductible insurance plan or they have these large outstanding co-pays. You know, can you talk a little bit as a former prosecutor to the routine waiver of co-pays and, and, and how that really impacts the practice? Sure. I'd, I'd be happy to. I mean, the fact is, it's, 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 it's not something that anybody likes. Uh, Congress, you know, they... When they passed or, or when they decided that they were going to have this statutory uh, exception, you know, as, as Mike can tell you, there have been a couple um, related safe harbors, regulatory safe harbors that have been passed since and mostly related to ACOs, where they've also tried to kind of uh, address the waiver of coinsurance. But let's just talk about the basics, though, to keep the ACO stuff out of it for now. Um, I, I will tell you, I've never seen uh, I've, I've never seen DOJ go after a physician only because they were waiving copayments or or deductibles. I, I just haven't seen that. But I have seen many many times when there was an investigation. If they find other violations, it's not at all uncommon these days for them to throw into the indictment the improper waiver of, of uh, co-payments and deductibles. That's something, it's, it's easy for the government to prove, and it, they view it, frankly, as an improper uh, beneficiary inducement. Um, and uh, one of the other areas, and this is not related necessarily to the exception or the, or the related safe harbors, but we get calls, I'm sure you do too, all the time, saying, well, if it's not Medicare and Medicaid, can I do it for private insurance? You know, that's just as problematic because, right. uh, well, first of all, it's a violation of your contract as a participating provider. And then second of all, unless you fully disclose it, when you submit the bill, it's very possible you're making a false statement on that record that you're submitting for uh, coverage and payment to the insurance company. And that could, you know, that, that could be a, 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 a violation of, uh, for, of uh, 1347, healthcare fraud. So. Yeah. You got to be really careful. Absolutely. And, you know, here, here's the thing, you know, and, and we'll move on from here because I want to talk really about the value-based aspect of the uh, statute. 
But, you know, here's the other thing, and you raised a really good point, which is, you know, violation of your contracts, your participation agreements with these commercial payers is highly problematic because they are as aggressive, if not more aggressive than what we see from, you know, the federal payer perspective. You know, these, well, these, these days, uh, especially, that's right. Yeah. You know, these uh, special investigative uh, groups or these SIU, the special investigation units, you know, they are uber aggressive and, and they're really cracking down on these. So I want to pivot if we can, Michael, um, you sure. know, knowing that I have your your brain and your skills here with us for uh, today, which is uh, uh, outstanding. I want to talk about the shift from value uh, from volume based care to value based care, because you know, that, that seems to be a big transition that we're going through and we've been going through. And I think that speaks specifically not only to the first push with the ACOs under 42 USC 1320 Section K, but I think it's also what became the prelude to Section KK, uh, which is the ACO Beneficiary Incentive pay, uh, you know, Program. So, Mike, let me, let me give you some time to talk a little bit about that transition from volume to value. Sure. And that's, um, and that's an important concept, Sean. Uh, thanks. Uh, basically, um, a number of years ago, um, we started recognizing, the government started recognizing that they were paying for volume, volume of care. And I think most people on this phone understand this and have lived through it. We were paying for widgets. The more widgets you produced, the, more, the, uh, the better reimbursement you got. And, we, and in many cases, um, the belief was that it was, that it was uh, better care as well. More, more recently, we've discovered, especially as we hit 18% of the gross national product going to healthcare, um, we've discovered that, in fact, keeping people well and paying, um, and paying for the value of care or paying for the outcomes is more important. And we tiptoed into this probably in the early, in the early 2000s when people, when the government um, asked for data and conditioned um, inflate and conditioned um, a percentage of your payments for hospitals, for example, upon giving the data on certain quality, I guess they were called indicators in those days, um, and, and, or measures. And at any rate, um, we started with the, um, with the Affordable Care Act really pushing the concept of, of, of basically encouraging providers to give better care restraining costs. There's, there's a reflection that if you, an understanding if you coordinate care better, um, you can get better outcomes and a belief at, 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 and save a lot of money. We're actually going even further now as we look at the social determinants. But uh, the, focus, the focus was in, on providing care efficiently. And the, uh, and the Medicare Shared Savings Program as part of the ACA was the earliest, shot, really earliest shot at it, where we, where we conditioned payment on encouraging behavior. Um, and the thought was, it, in many respects, it turns the safe harbors and the fraud and abuse law on its head. It's much closer to managed care. You're not worried about providing too many widgets. You're more worried about, about stinting on care, for example, providing le less care. Um, uh, and you're also 
trying to encourage with coordination of care, bringing organizations together, beneficiaries to cooperate in getting their appropriate care. So what they did with, um, with the ACO Beneficiary Incentive Program was in certain circumstances, uh, allow providers who were taking risk, for example, either for getting for sharing in the savings or, or two-sided risk, um, to enable them to encourage beneficiaries to, with small, and I mean small, payments to, um, to move to conduct that got them better care, getting labs for, for a diabetic, getting labs at the right time, things of that nature, so that you can catch people before they end up in the hospital. And Absolutely. that was sort of the, that yep. was the first precursor. A Absolutely. And I think that's a wonderful explanation. And, you know, one of the things that I wanted to go back to, and I want to make certain that I'm acknowledging, um, you know, the interaction of our viewers out there. Um, you know, one of the areas, Robert, as you were talking, that seems to be, you know, a, a big area, obviously, is with vendors. Vendors appear to be always, you know, a, a big concern, especially when you look at some of these rebate programs that they're talking about out there, and their sales reps are out there pushing for, you know, hey, run three or four of these patients a week through your program, and you're going to see an increase of X in your reimbursement and your dollars back from us. And then the other one that I, I want to talk about, and I'm going to, you know, pause and give you a chance to talk about that, is the tie-in to the um, electronic health records and items or services, because there was a modification, if I'm not mistaken, Robert and Michael, um, in section Y of the statute, um, whereby it, it, it talked about the fact that, you know, the safe harbor basically eliminated the sunset provision and made the safe harbor basically permanent. So let me let me uh, pause there for just a moment, but I, I want to I want to first have you guys address vendors because and, and listen I, I don't have anything against vendors personally as long as they're coming in and they're presenting information to the physician practices that's reasonable and it sets a reasonable expectation and it doesn't simply come in and tell them that hey we have an approved HICPICS code. You know, that means, you know, the gates are open. Go ahead and start billing for this thing. It's just the opposite. If there's, you know, just because there's a HICPICS code doesn't mean that there's a payment policy in place. And without a payment policy, it doesn't mean that you have a right to go ahead and bill for these services. So let me let me pause. And Robert and Michael, if you want to go ahead and take that one on, I'd appreciate it. Sure. I mean, this is kind of outside the context of, of safe harbors, if you will. It really comes down, I think, to, to vendor conduct. And I know exactly what you're talking about because we've had several cases in the last year where salespeople and vendors come in and they make certain representations to a practice that a procedure or a device is uh, qualifies for coverage and payment by Medicare. Um, as evidence of that, many times they would say, look, here, it's gone through the FDA approval process. Well, right. that doesn't mean anything with respect to coverage and payment. And uh, I would really strongly suggest that, I, I mean, these guys will come in and, and, and I'm not saying that, that they're all telling you incorrect information, but I can tell you that the cases that come to me, of course, they have. Mm 
Otherwise, these folks wouldn't be coming to me because they're being investigated now. The problem, of course, is you have to do due diligence. You cannot rely on what a third party tells you in terms of coverage and payment. You've got to go in. You've got to check yourself. You know, is this something that Medicare has addressed? Have they issued guidance on it? Just because they haven't issued guidance on it does not mean it's going to qualify for coverage and payment. You know, just the opposite. You, you, you really have to make sure that before you start listening to these vendors that are selling the latest and greatest of whatever it's doing, that, that before you start billing for that, that you have verified that, in fact, it qualifies for coverage and payment. Because, and, and to be real clear, a couple of the cases that I've worked on in the last year, there's no question in my mind or the provider's mind that the product was fantastic and that it worked. But just because something's medically necessary, just because it's efficacious, does not mean that it's going to be covered and paid by Medicare. And I, and I would just say that we really can't stress that enough because there have been a number of times where, uh, you know, I know Sean will agree with this, but there's been a number of times where we've been called in to consult on uh, the appropriateness or the payment methodology of a certain uh, vendor's product. And unfortunately, by the time we're called in, the product has already been acquired and is uh, at least in the in the act of being paid for. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and in fact, yeah, one time I worked with your team, Sean, because we had identified a situation where we didn't think it qualified for coverage of payment, and we wanted the experts at doctor's management to come in and verify it or, or tell us we're all wet, and unfortunately, we were correct. That's right, and, you know, and that's always the hardest thing to be able to go back to a provider and say, listen, I know you're getting paid for this, but it doesn't mean that what you've been paid is what you're going to get to hang on to. And here are all the reasons why. And it just becomes so devastating, you know, not only financially, but also, you know, you know, from a, a morale standpoint, because, you know, the doctors feel like, you know, I'm always behind the goalpost on these things. So look, you know, we obviously- Can I add one thing real quick, Sean? Please. Two Two, two problems that pop up that we see again and again and again. Anytime they tell you to unbundle certain services because it'll go through a lot easier, that's always a problem, okay? That's, that's one of the things that we see. And when they tell you to use one of the non-specified codes, that's also an indicator that perhaps what they're doing has not gone through the approval process. Yeah. So please be careful, guys. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I love first. Yeah, I love I love when they say, "Hey, right now, just bill it to Medicare. It, 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 don't bill it to any of the commercial payers." I always get a kick out of that one. But you know, Michael, I want to I want to move forward because you know, in the last five uh, to seven minutes that we have together here in this segment, I want to I want to talk about in the safe harbors number thirty one, which is the care coordination arrangements to improve quality, sure. healthcare outcomes, and efficiencies. And, and, and if you could, please tie in, you know, uh, uh, Safe Harbor 32 and 33. And just for our viewers, so you know, there's a total of 38 Safe Harbors that are out there. We focus on probably 36 of them, but there are 38 because uh, two have been held in reserve. But, Michael, uh, if you would, please go ahead and, and, and if you can, in our last uh, minutes together, let's talk about these, please. Sure. And, the, and this is the... And these are about the future. We've been talking about the past a lot, but these are about the future. Um, these are three safe harbors that basically allow greater flexibility depending upon the degree of risk that you're willing to, that, that, 
the participants are willing to take when they enter into what we call value-based enterprises. Um, a value-based value enterprise can be anything from uh, an accountable care organization in, in the shared savings programs, bundled payments, the BPCI, a whole host of models that the Innovation Center has developed uh, across the board. The first one of those is care, is, uh, a care coordination uh, to improve quality and health outcomes. This is the one where providers don't have to be necessarily taking any, a, a particular degree of risk. That's not, that's not what it's conditioned on, but it is conditioned on trying to make sure for a target population that um, entities are able to provide in kind, you can't provide cash on this one when you're not taking risk, but in kind um, services to improve care coordination and quality. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of one, um, a very simple one, which is uh, a hospital providing care coordinators for, um, uh, for discharged patients to physicians groups to follow them and uh, also providing technology to the patients in order, in order to try to minimize or eliminate uh, unnecessary readmissions or going back to the emergency room. Now, they're, they're conditioned on making sure you can't just do this willy-nilly. It's got to be for a target group of patients, and it's got to be related to the care that they're getting and the outcomes that are expected. And you've got to have measurements. And one, and, and one of the keys here is you've got to write this out in the contract. You can't just throw it up into the wind. And that's, and that's going to be somewhat difficult. I wouldn't use the word challenging, um, uh, but it's something you've got to be very careful that you do. Secondly, the recipient, uh, another big issue here is the recipient, the physicians group, for example, in my, in, in my example, has to pick up 15% of the cost. Um, and they define how 15% um, is determined. Uh, it can be the cost to the offerer or uh, or fair market value, and you've got to put all of that into the contract on how that works. The second, the second um, level you're talking about is value-based arrangements with substantial downside risk, and what that means is again the um, first of all uh, the participant, uh, first of all the VBEs got to take substantial downside risk. Um, uh, for the care and the and the recipient, the VBE participant, has got to meaningfully share in that downside risk. And the, and, uh, the regulation sets out three calculations on how you get to, uh, on how you get to uh, uh, determine substantial downside risk. We don't have time to go through that, but you work your way through it in the, in the process. Um, you, there are a number of safeguards built in there, and again, the contract has to set this out. Yep. And finally, you go to um, the third, uh, the third prong here, which is where the value, where the value-based arrangement takes full financial risk, uh, capitation, basically global, um, global risk for a target population. And it's got to be for a period of a year, as by the way, the substantial risk has to be a period for a period of a year. And 
here there are fewer restrictions because the risk itself um, the risk itself in essence guarant in essence provides safeguards for the pro for the program and Sean I don't know if you want me to do it here but I think it also leads into one last area and that's CMS arra CMS arranged um, models and there's a separate CMS sponsored model arrangements. Yeah, and, uh, and, and if you would, Mike, I think we'll have an opportunity in just a minute or two to get into that. But sure. what I want to do at this time is I want to go ahead and um, take a pause here for just a moment because I think what is so important for our audience that's viewing us today and listening to understand that we are honest to God just scratching the surface with talking about these statutory exceptions and talking about these safe harbors. We could literally continue this interview for probably another two to three hours. Um, I know that we've had uh, uh, several questions that have come in. And what I want to do at this time is take an opportunity to right now thank one of our other sponsors. This segment now is brought to you by BC Advantage. BC Advantage is the largest independent resource provider in the industry for medical auditors, billers, coders, compliance officers, and practice managers. You can visit them at www.billing-coding.com. Again, that is www.billing-coding.com. Okay, so in the last seven minutes that we have, uh, Michael, I'll come back to you on these uh, care models here in just a moment. Uh, Scott, I know you've been monitoring uh, the questions as they've been coming in, uh, and I know that you had a couple that were uh, being posed with respect to uh, some of the uh, evaluation and management service changes for 2021. Uh, in the last uh, seven minutes that we have with our uh, audience today, uh, take a few and let's just run through these. And then if we can, we'll give Michael an opportunity to talk about the care model, maybe in the last uh, couple of minutes of closing here. Still on mute. So one of the, one of the questions that's come up to us uh, that I do want to ask you um, is this issue of goals of care. So we've gone from this idea that something is stable or worsening uh, versus being improved to this idea of the goals of care and the pa if the patient's not at treatment goal, they're not at state, they're not stable. Uh, and so the question that came up is how do you recommend that be quantified uh, in the record so that we're not just constantly saying not at goal, but we don't really understand much more than that. All right. Any, any other questions that we have uh, for the evaluation management services? If not, I want to give Michael Cook an opportunity here in the last few minutes that we have together to uh, really close out this segment on the anti-kickback statute conversation that we've been having with respect to the CMS-sponsored modeled arrangements and CMS-sponsored modeled uh, patient incentives. And, and again, for those of you that are not as familiar with this as uh, maybe some of the other folks on the uh, line today, you know, this new safe harbor, um, you know, creates remuneration provided in connection with a CMS sponsored model. So Michael, why don't you please, if you could uh, take us for the next two minutes, if you would, and just kind of uh, wind us through this. Sure, as I think, um, again, most of the participants on this phone are aware um, 
since the uh, since the uh, uh, since the enactment of the ACA, uh, you've had what's called the Center for Medicare and Medicaid uh, Innovations or the Innovation Center that has been developing models of care um, uh, and basically testing them. Um, there's a there's a tremendous um, uh, statutory um, ability for the innovation center if it meets if a, if a particular model meets certain metrics to actually take it um, national or regional with simple um, with simply um, uh, regulatory rather than statutory change. So at any rate. Um, on these models, CMMI, as an example, the Comprehensive Joint Replacement Program. When CMMI, that's a program where for joint replacements, um, if you're a hospital participating in this, you've got responsibility not only for the particular procedure, but 90 days thereafter. So you've got to start collaborating with your, um, uh, with, with a whole group of downstream provider players. So what happened there was they real, the, um, the government realized that to do the appropriate the, to get the appropriate incentives, and for example, you were allowed to share risk with your collaborators like your docs, um, you would, without certain waivers, violate the um, violate the anti-kickback statute. So the uh, so the OIG. Uh, issued its own waivers. It took a while. Um, it took a while to get there, uh, and there were also certain exceptions and waivers that uh, CMS, CMMI, was able to put in there. What they're doing here is saying, if you've got a C, if you've got a CMS-sponsored model arrangement, and you follow the uh, waivers that CMS, that the Innovation Center establishes, that will be sufficient. Um, to constitute a safe harbor, if you if you comply with those rules, you don't. They don't. They're trying to get away from um, the OIG having to pick up real quickly on something that CMMI, the Innovation Center, has really worked on for some time. They've got the waivers down, quite frankly, um, for these types of programs already pretty pretty well established. So. Basically, what it's saying is if you follow the waivers and you follow that are built into the CMMI models, that in and of itself will constitute um, a safe harbor without Excellent. separate OIG. I, I, I want to mention one thing, Sean, and then I'll shut up and, and allow you to continue. <laughs> We're going to see a lot more of the a lot more risk taking in the future and shifting of downstream risk. Uh, if you take a look at something called Learning Action Network, which uh, Mark McClellan established out of Duke University. Yes. Um, you start see you start seeing the movement to, in essence, what we call population health. Um, and there are four quadrants of it. You're going to see more and more. I think you're going to see more and more movement in that area, and that's going to make these safe harbors and value uh, value based safe harbors more important to understand. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. And I think, you know, as we continue down this road that we're on right now, I think value-based care is going to continue to stay at the front of these discussions 
Uh, I think there's so much more that we have to explore. There's so much more that has to be understood. And I think at the end of the day, Robert and Michael, I, I hope you would agree with me on this one, that, you know, there are so many aspects to the way that these exclusions were written, um, as well as the way that these safe harbors were written, that it just makes you kind of sit back and scratch your head and and wonder really who was writing this stuff, right, Robert? Uh, you know, I mean, we've had these conversations in the past. You know, I think the problem is not really with the exceptions in the safe harbors. It's more with the fact that the statute itself is so extraordinarily broad that you have to have the need for these to begin with. You know, and, yeah. and as we've discussed, uh, the way the statute started out in 72 and the way it is today is very, very different. I mean, now, today, you don't even have to have actual knowledge or specific intent to violate this criminal statute that can result in you going to jail for 10 years. And, and that's, just, that's just the most egregious part of this, right? Because in healthcare, as we've talked about numerous times, you know, you're really guilty until you can prove yourself innocent. And that's not how our criminal justice system was created. And, you know, so... Listen, I, I can't thank you and Michael enough for being here. Folks, this takes us to the end of our show. I can't believe our first show is already over. It's already been one hour. I would like to thank our special guests, Robert Lyles and Michael Cook, for joining us today. And to you, my co-host, Scott Kraft, and the amazing production crew who made this all possible today. Yes. Uh, please, yeah. Please do not forget to join us for episode two in May when we will welcome special guest Eric Rubenstein. So from myself and our whole team here at the Compliance Guy Live, thank you so much for joining us and we look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. <laughs>